Okay, let me start with something that may be controversial for some of you. Uh, I'm proud to be an American. Okay? Not because America's the great, America is the greatest country in the world. There's a lot of ways that we're not. When I'm in Cambodia, and I talk to the young Cambodian leaders and pastors there, I tell them they should be proud of their country. When I'm in India, I tell the pastors and leaders there, you should be proud of your country. When I'm in Nepal, Mozambique, Haiti, all the places that I go. You know why? Because starting in Genesis 10, God made the nations on purpose. He made them on purpose. Think of it this way, to use an older metaphor, which the young ones may not understand. Here's God, and he creates a kaleidoscope of nations. And he wants all of them to love him. And we play a very distinct role as nations in the theology of God. We do. You see, he, only, he chose one of those nations, Israel, to reach the rest. And that's really the story of the Bible, how that happens. But the question is, why? Why did he make all these very distinct people groups, which he did? He did it on purpose, okay? And it's something you have to really look in anthropology to start answering that question, but it looks like this. When I talk to a a man, Caucasian male my age, and I hear his story about how he came to know Christ, I learn something about the Lord that I didn't know because his story is going to be different than mine. And then when I ask, I cross a gender barrier, and I ask a woman her thought on how she came to know Christ and how God has lived in her life, you know what? I learned, I learned something very different because the, the view gets a little broader now. And then when you cross over the ocean and you begin to cross socioeconomic, religious, cultural, every barrier that there is, when you go to the backwoods of Nepal, and you've crossed so many barriers, and you hear them talk about the Lord, and my view of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In other words, there's not one of you out there that has a perfect view of God. You would be Jesus if you did. And uh, Jesus isn't, well, he's standing here with us, but he's not sitting out there with you right now. So none of us are Jesus. So the role that we play by our, by our ethnic diversities is really critical in theology. Another way to say it is God cannot be fully known until both genders, sorry if that upsets you, too, Both genders and every ethnic group is heard from. And that's what eternity is all about. Five times, every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group is an eternity sharing and praising God. That's how we learn who God is. And the more we listen to each other, the more our view of God grows. So diversity is part of God's plan of theology. It is. And it's a wonderful thing. And I've got 25 years now teaching in other countries outside of this country. And uh, I love my country. Not because it's the greatest. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I'm not going to get into that. There's a lot of things we do. I just go, ah, I wish we hadn't done that or I wish we didn't do that. But because God placed me here. But guess what? I'm proud to be a Christian too. I'm not ashamed to tell people I'm a Christian wherever I am in the world could be a bar, coffee shop, airport, airplane, train station. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. And I don't mind telling people that. Here's the challenge. I am a Christian within the context of a broken culture. Well, guess what? Everybody I teach around the world is in the same situation. 
Their brokenness looks different than ours. It's hard for them just as it is hard for us to navigate. And we're going to address some of this today as, um, and for those of you that perhaps come from other countries, maybe you can take some of these principles back, but how do we as American Christians right here, how do we work within our own country to, to right the wrongs? Do you know that's what righteousness means? To put to rights what is wrong? And we are to be that way. We're doing a series, a series, uh, a theme really, all summer uh, called The Messiness of the Kingdom. Edith Schaefer, many, many years ago, wrote a book and she used the imagery, the metaphor of a tapestry. Some of you, hopefully all of you know, if the metaphor works, then you gotta know. A, a tapestry is beautiful in the front. When you step on the backside, it's really messy. You got threads hanging out and, and it's all, ugh, right? Until you step on the other side, see how beautiful it is? And that's how the picture, uh, that's how the, uh, the New Testament portrays us. From God's perspective, it's beautiful. He's at the other side. He already sees it completed, fulfilled, wonderful. But on the backside, it's really messy. That's where we live today. We live in the messy part of the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom, very often, we automatically conjure up something perfect because that's way down the line. Well, we're not there at that part yet. We still live in this place. We live in a natural world, but we're called to live in a spiritual world. How on earth do we distinguish between the natural and the spiritual? Those are two different worlds that we have to live in at the same time. We really do live in two worlds at the same time. Paul's very clear on that. And so I call this the messiness of the kingdom because when you look at the parables, you know what? It's messy because the parables are all about today. They're all about how we live life today. And so when you look at the teachings of Jesus, it seems to me that you see a principle at work. Every time he teaches, he teaches on the ideal world in the kingdom, what it should be like. It's so countercultural. You look at the Beatitudes, all the values that culture at that time despised, all the bottom values, the weak, the meek, you know, poor, they, they despise that. He raises them to the top. What he does, it's a grand reversal. He, in, he inverts the values of the world because he's, he's trying to give us a glimpse of this spiritual world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They shall inherit the earth, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those, and he goes on and on. And so whenever he teaches, he gives us this ideal of what it looks like in the spiritual world. But then when you look at his behaviors, he's navigating that in a fallen world. It's really fascinating when you see that difference. So he says in Matthew, if anyone denies me publicly, I'll deny him before the Father. That's exactly what Peter did, but he didn't deny him. He went after him. I've said many, many times over the years that Judas was a fool, not because he betrayed Jesus. Peter did that, but because he committed suicide. I've often wondered what the end of John would look like when Jesus went after Peter if Judas was still alive. Remember, he called him friend. It's the last thing he said to him was friend. We broke bread together. You're really going to do this. Okay? So today we're going to look at a parable. It's in Matthew 18. Uh, it is the parable of the unmerciful. That's what the NIV calls it. I tend to think of it as the unforgiving 
uh, servant. Think about our culture. You earned it. You deserve it. Have it your way. I mean, how many slogans can you think of that define our culture today? We are so good at dividing. We're so good at labeling. We're so good at creating ideologies and pushing those ideologies, whatever they happen to, to be. And this is a challenge that we're faced with as Christians is how to navigate that. I'm not going to tell you how to believe. You have your own theological convictions. But what I am going to ask is that you continually stay focused on the core kingdom values that, that, that define this spiritual world uh, and we hope to figure out how to bring them into the natural world. What did we read in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is there. On earth as it is in heaven. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that, that line. I think everybody, okay? This is our job, is to bring the kingdom of values to bear here. And it's far more than evangelism. That's just a, a little tiny snippet. A little tiny snippet. You look in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation, verse 17. The old is gone, the new is here. This is our reality now, the spiritual world, okay? But you know what the verse before it says? I found very few people that know it. Based on the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standard. The labels are gone. There's no more scarlet letters. The labels are gone. You see, Christianity brings something to the table that is beautiful. We get rid of the labels. They're gone. I don't care who walks through the doors of our church. I'm just going to have a blast loving them. I know enough now after 10 years that every one of your lives is kind of messed up. Every one of you struggles with sin, right? Every one of you, 100%. You just don't show it. And the fun for me as a pastor is walking the road with you, enjoying it. I've said many times, if you're stuck in sin, come talk. Jesus said in Luke 6, no, do not judge, do not condemn. You're not going to get shame or anything like that from me. You might get laughter because you got your life in a bind. That's what sin does. It kind of gets you all tangled up, doesn't it? But you're going to find compassion. You're going to find help, as Hebrews says, in time of need. Don't stay stuck. So one of the things I do know for sure, no question in my mind, is every one of you has a sin problem. The great thing about Christianity is that all those labels go away. Based on the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. I don't care if you're Democrat. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're woke. I don't care if you fill in the blank. Whatever the current label is, and in my lifetime has changed many, many times. I don't care what the label is. When we're having coffee, I just want to know, do you love the Lord? What's that doing in your life? Is it drawing you closer? And the more you get caught up in the ideologies and divisions of the world, you know what happens? You, you move further and further away from the Lord. That's what happens. You move further and further away. My job as a pastor is to help keep helping bringing you back to the cross because we have a job to do. 
I personally, my own personal theology is that my uh, American uh, upbringing is not going to go away in eternity because five times it says every nation, every tribe, every people, every language is in eternity. I get to be an American for all of eternity. I talk to my friends in, in Nepal and, uh, and their, their country's a mess and they're discouraged. They have, there's no hope of changing it because it, they're so overwhelmed with Hinduism. Okay? The place is filthy. And I said, all right, picture this. Traumatizing scripture a little bit. So bear with me just a little bit, okay? Let me uh, have a little bit of liberty here. So I said, okay. So the Lord comes back and he says, all right. <laughs> By the way, I almost, almost said this verse and I thought I should tell you a backstory. Uh, at the end of Revelation, when in the New Jerusalem, it says uh, the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Apparently, after Jesus comes back, we got a whole lot of work to do. We think of it as just everything's perfect. No, 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 no. No, the tree of life is there. Once we get to the New Jerusalem, to heal the nations, to start healing what, what we've created, this destructive mess. Okay? I shared that one time several years ago right here at the amphitheater. Uh, later on in the week, I was at uh, Red Buffalo Coffee, and a guy walks up with, no, I don't mean to stereotype, but it's going to happen. A guy walks up with dreads down to here, and he goes, dude, I really liked what you said on Sunday about the leaves. Huh? You talked about the leaves healing the nation in Revelation. You were there for that? Yeah. He goes, I have a question. Could that be cannabis? <laughs> All my Greek and Hebrew didn't help me one bit. And I said, I have no idea, man. And he goes, well, I think it is. And I said, well, apparently you and I are going to find out together. We got work to do after Jesus comes back. Okay? What's gone is all the evil corruption and all of that. That's what's gone. And now we get to finally do it the right way. The right way. So I said to my friends in Nepal, these young leaders, they're so discouraged. I said, so picture this. Again, give me a little bit of freedom. Jesus comes back and he says, all right, I gave you a perfect creation. Do you like this creation out here? Okay, travel around the world. This is an illusion. The rest of the world is really dirty. Okay, and he says, the first thing you're going to do, clean it up. Clean it up. We have the technology to do it. So I told my friends, imagine a whole bunch of us from the United States coming over with our technology, and we're going to help clean up your country. And I've never seen so many excited young pastors that there is a hope beyond what we have here. You see, that's what countries are supposed to do. God blesses one country so that they can bless other countries and so that the other countries can come and learn about Jesus. Make sure... Make sure that you frame your belief system according to this. So I said, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Nobody knows how I'm registered. Several people over the last 10 years have tried to guess. Nancy's the only one. My kids don't even know because it's not important. The moment you label me, I've lost half of my ministry. Ask me a policy, and I'll tell you what I think about that. I don't really care what your background is your ideologies. What I care about is, do you know the Lord? And are you being drawn to him day by day to become more like him so we can have impact right here, right here? So listen to this because the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant raises a a real core issue in our country. 
Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or seven times seven, 70 times seven. Okay, a little bit of confusion there. The, the point is that, that it's infinite. Okay? You never stop forgiving the person next to you, ever. So therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, uh, the, began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, just to give you a sense of what that's worth today, that's $6.5 billion. Okay? So what is equivalent today? 60 million days of work. Okay? Let's just give you the real picture. $6.5 billion was brought to him since he was not able to pay the master order that he and his wife and children and all he had be sold to repay the debt, which, by the way, can never be repaid. Once you go into debtor's prison, you have no way of paying it back. So the servant fell on his knees and begged him and says, please be patient with me. I will pay back everything, which is not possible, is it? He owed $6.5 billion. It's not even possible. But then the servant, so he showed, up, he showed pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So the servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. I'll put that in perspective, that's about $10,000 in today's world. Six and a half billion, 10,000. And he uh, choked him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, please be patient with me, I will pay it back. And he said, no way, threw him in prison. Threw him in prison. So the other servants, they were outraged. They saw what happened. And so they went and told their master what happened. So he called in this wicked servant and said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, which is never going to happen. Then he concludes with this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. You see, one of the defining characteristics of Christianity ought to be forgiveness. Now listen again to these words in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts or trespasses, depending on which which gospel you're in. As, as we have forgiven our debtors, it doesn't say, forgive us our debts, and we will forgive our debtors. It doesn't say that. Forgive us our debts as we have already done it. And by the way, that's Paul's argument at the end of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Forgive one another because Christ has already forgiven you. You see, it starts with us forgiving first. And then we receive this forgiveness. And he goes on, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What would our country look like if all of us, all the citizens of America, lived in forgiveness? What would it look like? I could read you all the stories. You guys are familiar with what goes on in the world of the shootings in the, in the churches where the churches stood up and forgave them. I mean, you know the stories. I've told you about Rachel Din Hollander who forgave Dr. Nasser. She was one of the gymnasts, right? At his court sentencing. 
You see, the story is full of these little pockets of people that do it. So the first question I have is, what or who do you need to forgive? I've said in my church, believe it or not, whether you like the public school board or not, they are not our enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. Our struggle, our enemy is Satan. He's our enemy. So what is in here that's hard? What is it? What's hard? Do you want to make this country a truly a great country? Don't look at economics. Don't look at the, don't look at the, the issues of how well we're doing in school. Oh, those are all problems, I'm sure, and we need to fix them. But that's, that's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is right here. One of the things we learned from studying Leviticus two and a half years ago, Leviticus was not impossible. It was very clear. It was very simple. If you got mold on the wall, scrape it off. Nothing hard about that, nothing unclear. That's not the problem. The problem is here. And that is the problem with our country and every other country in the world is right here. You want to truly make this a great country? Then let's become a people that forgive all the time. In other words, we live in a state of forgiveness. By the way, this passage that I read in Matthew 18, it, uh, it comes at the end of, and we always separate these. I love how people use these verses. If two or three of you agree on anything, they ask for it to be done by my Father in heaven. Okay? Oh, if we got two or three together, then we can have confidence. Confidence about what? I love how we break all this as a part. Well, this comes at the end of the passage on what do you do with sin? In the church, Matthew 18, somebody's sitting, go to them. If they don't listen, take a friend. If they don't listen, then go back and uh, take a group, and you know, the elders or whatever, and then take it to the church. Okay? This obviously is a passage on excommunication. I don't buy it. It just goes, it violates against everything he's teaching. I don't think this is against ex- about excommunication at all. Listen to what he says. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. In Greek, let them be to you like a pagan or a tax collector. (coughs) How did Jesus treat tax collectors? I would have loved to have heard the conversation with Matthew that last night. So Matthew, a tax collector, what were you doing when I uh, found you? Ah. Sorry, Lord. I was stealing money and extorting for people. Yeah. And I loved you anyway. Zacchaeus. You learned it as a kid. It's walking down through the throngs. Hey, Zacchaeus. A chief tax collector. The chief thief. <laughs> Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm eating in your house today. What is Zacchaeus say? I'm going to pay back four times what I stole. And Jesus laughed and said, yep, salvation came to this house today. There's a kingdom of value that shifted a person's life. Right? How about pagans? What about when he's in Simon 
the Pharisee's house. And there's a woman who's a sinner washing his feet, right? And Simon says to himself, you know, if he was really the Messiah, he would know that this woman's a sinner. And he would uh, not allow her to do that. What did Jesus say? Simon, question for you. I came into your house. You didn't wash my feet. Cultural faux pas, by the way. And yet this woman has not stopped washing my feet. To whom much is given, much is expected. The woman caught in adultery. Right? Where are all your accusers? They're all gone. Neither do I accuse you. I want to meet her one day. What was that moment like? The shame when they dragged you before as a crowd before Jesus. Everybody left and he said, neither do I accuse you. Quit sinning. I want to know what that was like. I've experienced my own self, that grace, that forgiveness that keeps going on and on. Well, what was it like for her? I don't know that. So treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Jesus welcomed pagans and tax collectors. I think what he's talking about is that recognize that this person that is so stuck in sin, they can't see out of it. How many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution, the movie? Oh, a bunch of you. There's a scene in there where their lights are dim and they're doing drugs. When I saw that part of the movie, I just started to weep because that was my journey. I, I grew up in that era. I remember, I remember being in a place very much like that, doing drugs, and just hopeless. And I was raised in a Christian family. Hopeless. No place to turn. Complete darkness. And I think what he's saying here is be compassionate because that's when he talks about where two or three on earth agree, I'm with you. And Peter said, well, then how many times should I forgive? That's the next section. For eternity. People stuck in sin, those are extra grace people. I can't tell you the stories I've heard in the last 10 years or the last 30. I'm convinced I can't be shocked anymore. I've heard it all. Maybe I'll be surprised. But when I'm with that person that stuck that deep in their sin. Everything in me wants to love them, to show grace. Forgive one another as Jesus has already forgiven you. Talk about messy. Does it get any messier than this? It's easy to love people that come back and say, I'm sorry. What did Jesus say on the cross? Same thing Stephen said when he's being stoned. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And he says, forgive them. What would our nation be like if we had a nation of people that just lived in forgiveness? What would it be like? We truly would be the greatest country in the world. We really would be. And we would be a bright light for a dark world. It's not based on policies, ideologies, not based on political parties, not based on any of that. What makes a nation great is who follows these kingdom values. And in our communities, wherever you happen to come from, 
What would your community be like if your church was known? You go down to a restaurant owner and you talk to him. Tell us what our church is like. Oh, that's a very loving and forgiving people. Let me say a word about what forgiveness looks like. How do you do it? It's messy. It's not easy. It's honestly the hardest thing you're going to do. But this forgiveness, forgiveness is the pathway to joy. Okay? John 14, at the end of the, uh, his last night, he's with the disciples, and he's given them his final words because uh, the next day he's going to be executed, and the Holy Spirit is going to remind them of these final words. If whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Obedience is tied to love. You can demonstrate it. And whoever loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I too will love him. And here you go. And I will show myself to him. I will disclose myself to that person. You want to draw closer to Jesus? Let's start forgiving. Here's what it looks like in real life. Okay? You can talk to a counselor about why this works, but it's true. It looks like this. I have to forgive this person after what he or she has done to me? Lord, please help me to forgive this person. Wait, I have to forgive this person? They've never even repented. Yeah. Lord, help me to forgive this person. I have to forgive this person after what they did to my spouse? Yes. Lord, help me forgive this person. And the list goes on and on. And there comes a day when you've done that enough times and you see how hard it is that your gaze naturally moves to heaven and you say, is that what it was like for you to forgive me? And you hear this thunderous yes. There is no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3. Paul goes on, there's not even one person who does good. That's how broken our world is. And I see it all over the world. And there comes a point when you say, huh, that was me, wasn't it, Lord? And he said, yes. Matthew, what were you doing when I found you? I'd love to have coffee with each of you and say, what were you doing when Jesus found you? What was the brokenness? Because you all have it. And when Jesus begins to reveal himself to you, that's when you begin to experience true joy. This parable is critical for our nation. Quit dividing. Based on the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. There's no longer any Republican, no Democrat, no woke, no, I don't even know what the opposite of that is. None of that. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. They are. So let me go back to where I started. I'm proud to be an American because it gives me a unique way to minister that my Cambodian friends don't have. But they have a unique way that I don't have. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to be a Christian. Am I ashamed of some of the things that our country has done and is doing? Of course I am, just like you. But that doesn't stop me from saying, thank you, Lord. You placed me here, right here. And I'm grateful for that because now I know my 
I know my realm of influence. My realm of influence. You want to change our culture? Be a forgiving people. So I'll leave you with this question. Who or what ideology do you need to put behind you? Who do you need to forgive? Just take 30 seconds and think of that person and say, Lord, do you want me to forgive that person after what they've done to me or to others? Just take 30 seconds and ask the Lord for help. Forgiveness is a process, it's not an event. Don't make the mistake of saying, I forgive you. That's a lie. Learn to say, my commitment is to never hold that sin against you again. That's what forgiveness is. Never penalizing another person for their wrongdoing. That's forgiveness. Father, thank you for being a remarkable God. Thank you for being a God who is gracious and loving, kind, gentle. A God who is forgiving. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, when I wake up, you have, ri- you have wiped the slate clean, erased everything I did yesterday, and you forgot it. You threw it as far as the east is from the west, and you remember it no more. Thank you that every day, every day is a fresh day, a new day for you with us. God, we truly desire to have uh, a great nation. We got a lot of work to do, Lord, to make it a great nation. And I'd rather trust you, Lord, than uh, any particular political party. Help us, Father, to be a forgiving people, to love our neighbors well, deeply, authentically, richly, and to forgive them, Lord, as you have forgiven us. And then, Lord, we delight to look in your face because you'll show yourself to us. Help, help us not to be like the unmerciful, their unforgiving servant, but to be like you who forgave $6.5 billion worth of debt. Help us to be like that. In your son's name, we pray and ask because we are grateful. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take. And made prizes for all the losers, which in cards is normally me. So I have this, uh, this prize from the Mother's Day card game that says, uh, you are not a sore, S-O-R, loser, L-O-O-Z-E-R. You are not a sore loser, Papa. And I, this, this is my greatest, my greatest prize. We are, we're pretty obsessed <clears throat> with, with winning and losing, aren't we? We uh, love to think in terms of winners and losers. Uh, how is it that we still, even after all these, all these years, love to sing that song by Queen, We Are the Champions? We are the champions. We'll keep on striving to the end. No time for losers. We are the champions of the world. 
love winners and losers. We love, we love ranking things. I mean, I cannot tell you how much pleasure it gave me this past week when I checked the preseason college football rankings and found that the team that has been the scourge of my life is not even in the top 25. Now, they will. They'll ruin my life again like they always do. But just to see them not even in the top 25 was such a, such a pleasure. Um, we, we, love, we love winners and losers. We love thinking in terms of that. Now, I know y'all are in the, in the middle of a series on Jesus' parables called The Messiness of the Kingdom. And if you've studied or even read many of Jesus' parables, you know that these parables often turn our expectations and turn many of our assumptions upside down about the way God works in our lives. You know, the, the, the rules and the, the protocols and the metrics that we use so often in so many areas of our lives and that, are, that, that work for us very well in many of the areas of our, of our lives get strangely turned around when Jesus tells us what it means in God's kingdom really to have a relationship with God. Um, these parables do that. So we're going to look at yet another one of these parables this morning. If you've got some copy of the scriptures handy, you, if you want to follow along, it'll be in Gos- uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 20. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But to see how this parable really conveys something of the life-giving messiness of the kingdom, we have to get a little bit of the prelude, the ramp into this parable. It starts in the latter part of Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus has a, a wealthy, affluent young man approach him and ask him, how do I get eternal life? Now, we have no context for the question. We don't know why he asked the question, what led up to it. We don't know if he was uh, bored with all of his wealth and looking for a kind of spiritual turbocharge. We don't know if he was uh, engaged in some deep struggle in his life and he, and he really needed help. We don't know. He just asked that question of Jesus. How do we get eternal life? And Jesus, uh, seeing far into his heart, apparently, Jesus t- tells him, keep all the commandments of God. Now, of course, anybody who's honest will know, I've never done that. How, how can you even do that? But, he's, but this young, affluent man says, I've kept all of them from my childhood. Really? Really? Well, Jesus says, okay, you lack one thing then if you want eternal life. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And with that one question, Jesus got to the heart of the problem because Matthew records that the young, affluent man went away sad. See, Jesus could tell that his wealth had him by the throat. He didn't just own his wealth. His wealth owned him. And he walked away sad. Now, that led to a, a conversation with the disciples. Jesus turns to the disciples then and says to them something very familiar to many of you. He says, it is so difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He said it's even more difficult than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's more than difficult. That's impossible. And the disciples, you know, say to Jesus, well, who then in the world can be saved? Jesus led him right to the point. He said, with, with you, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter then, the one who seems never to have had a thought that he did not say, the apostle Peter says, and I, and I appreciate his raw honesty. He says to Jesus, you know, we have given up everything for you. So what's in it for us? We've done that. We, we've walked away from our lives, our vocations, in some cases our families, to follow you. So what's in it for us? This is where Jesus gives the answer to the, uh, that is the parable. But he starts it with this line, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So the kingdom of heaven is like this. A landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard after agreeing with the workers on one denarius, which was a typical day's wage for a laborer, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he said to them, you also go into my vineyard, and I'll give you whatever is right. And so they went off. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Well, because no one hired us, they said to him. Well, then you also go into my vineyard, he told them. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. 
So when the first ones came, they assumed that they would get more, because they, but, but they also received an denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. The landowner replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? And are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, that's, uh, that's an odd story. What do you make of a tale like that? Are, are we supposed to assume that... that um, Employers can then just kind of treat workers unfairly? Is that a, is that a validation of, of injustice of some sort? Or is that a, a way of saying, you know, if you just kind of hold off and come late to the game, you can still cash in? <laughs> no, see, this parable is standing the disciples and all of our expectations on their heads about what it really means to have full relationship with God in the kingdom of God. Because he's telling them through this parable that the kingdom of heaven is about grace, about radical generosity on the part of God. Radical, stunning, incalculable generosity from God. You see, Peter and the disciples, probably like many of us, was still keeping a ledger. He was still running the rankings. He still had his calculator going. Still had that calculator, keeping track of what he had sacrificed and who gave what, and what God owed. And this radical, stunning, even seemingly absurd generosity on the part of God it's not like an excuse. It's not unjust injustice. It's like a surgeon's scalpel that comes in and opens us up and shows what's really going on. In fact, it kind of cuts the calculator out of our hands. Peter's still got the ledger going, and it's easy for us to keep that ledger going as well, isn't it? But grace, grace is never unjust, but grace always goes beyond justice. That, that life-giving grace of God, that life-giving generosity of God is so radical that sometimes it even offends us and sometimes it feels absurd. But that's, that's kingdom grace. That's what it means to have eternal life. That's what it means to be in a genuine life-giving relationship with God. Because that kingdom grace, by many of our standards, is very messy. Now, grace is a word that gets thrown around a lot among Christians, rightly so, maybe even among other religious people. But the concept of grace often gets really thinned out where it's just a, a, a very superficial veneer that, that often just means being a well-mannered person, being nice and polite, having good social skills. Sometimes grace is taken to mean that, uh, that there's really nothing wrong with us. That God just takes us as we are, turns a blind eye to anything, anything we might call sin in our lives, just normalizes it. But as I know your pastor has said to you before, once sin becomes normalized, we don't need redemption. Once that which, which corrodes our interior lives, that, that, that which destroys us from the inside out before God, once that becomes just validated and normalized, we don't need a savior. We just need a tune-up. And if we're really honest, a tune-up never does it. We need radical redemption. You know, that word radical doesn't mean extreme. It comes from a Latin word that means core or center. So when God's grace is radical, that means it goes right to the core of who we are, right to the core of our need, right to the center of our lives. It gets at the real business. So it's never a superficial veneer. I mean, you know, good social skills are great. Being nice is great. Being encouraging to others is great, but those never get to the core of what it means for God to give us grace and for us to need grace. But this type of grace we see in this parable of the laborers in the vineyard is this wild, incalculable generosity that blows apart all of our control mechanisms. It takes the calculator out of our hands, and it blows apart everything that each of us would depend upon to make ourselves acceptable before God. You see, grace does not merely close the gaps after we've done the best that we can do. Grace does not merely tell us that we're okay 
when we still need deep, deep redemption. Grace is that wild generosity of God that, that shocks us, that humbles us, but that gives us life. It's that kind of grace that Jesus was about to provide on his way to Jerusalem. You see, he told this parable while he was literally on his way to his death. It was probably only days or weeks before he hung on a cross, uh, willingly. He went there to do for every single one of us what none of us could ever do for ourselves, and that is to expose all that is sinful and evil and wrong in the world, to expose everything that we have done to separate ourselves from God and to take, for, for God to take God's own judgment on himself because he loves us and values us too much to just let us go. That was the definitive act, the defining act that God performed on us that we could never do that allows God then to be so lavishly generous that defies our calc- in ways that defy our calculations. That's, that's radical grace. That's life-giving grace. That's grace that humbles us to admit that we need it. That's grace that's conveyed when Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That makes no sense to us. But what that means is that in the kingdom of God, we can't just copy and paste all the, the mechanisms that work for us, maybe that make us very successful in lo- this life. We don't just copy and paste those up onto God and expect that to work because our need before God is so much deeper. And God's grace, God's generosity toward us is so much more staggering. That's a grace that catches us off guard. Whether we're a Christian who has been faithfully at it for a long time, maybe, maybe you're one of those who has, has sacrificed to serve others, has, has sacrificed to uphold ethical integrity, has sacrificed to, to stay in relational faithfulness, and done those things that, that God does not ignore, God honors. And yet, those things, as Peter said, you know, we left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? Jesus says, you don't know how this works. That is not how this works. This works out of my generosity, my pure unilateral generosity to you because I love you. And you can't calculate that. But you know, on the other side as well, it, it's possible that, uh, th- that you may be one of those who feels like, I've gone too far. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've experienced. I don't know how God could ever be that generous with me. But because God's generosity is not merely goodwill, but deep love for the creatures he values. And because Jesus' death and resurrection went to the very core of that problem, that generosity is open to all. Nobody's gone too far. Nobody's done too much. Nobody's done too little. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. That grace blows our minds. That grace should make our jaws drop. That grace should make our eyes pop. That grace should take our breath away because it is so radical. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So the question before every one of us today, friends, is do we have the capacity to let go of the self-pity that maybe keeps us from receiving that generous grace? Do we have the capacity to let go of the calculations and the rankings and that winner and loser mindset that, that we apply to so many other areas of life? Do we have the capacity to let those go and let God be gracious to us? That's the question. Grace is, grace is humbling. Grace is surgical. Grace is shocking. And that's the grace that's life-giving. Deeply deeply life-giving. We're going to have an opportunity here in just a moment for you, if you wish to, to express your gratitude. Our ushers are going to come forward in just a moment and let you um, have a chance to participate in God's generosity. I have known of DCC. I've been familiar with DCC for many years. And I can tell you honestly, I've never known a church that is more involved in and committed to its community and that helps more people in its community. Uh, if you're a regular here at DCC, if you're visiting from some other place in the country or some other place in the world and want to help DCC help many of the people who, even in a community like this, are very, very needy, this will be an opportunity for you to express gratitude for the generosity of God in doing that. 
And then when that's done, we're going to have an opportunity for you to, uh, to respond to that, that offer of generosity at the Lord, uh, from the Lord at the Lord's table. I'm going to ask for those who might be uh, interested in helping serve. We're going to need about eight down here and about four up top. Uh, if you would like to help serve the Lord's table this morning, come on down. There'll be folks to help you get positioned. And whether you've been a, a believer in Jesus, a follower in Jesus for a long time, or maybe today is the day you're thinking this is the day to start that. This is a chance to come and respond to his offer of generosity to you through that, that bread and that cup. Let's uh, pray together. And I think the band's going to come back out and lead us while uh, the ushers take the offering, and then we'll move into communion. Our Father, we are deeply, deeply grateful for your generosity to us, generosity that goes beyond the kind of generosity we so easily calculate and generosity we so uh, routinely practice. We're grateful for that because we're grateful that you have taken our, us and our lives so seriously to deal with all that separates us from you through Jesus our Lord. Uh, by your Spirit today, make that, make that real and present to each of us in whatever way each of us needs so that we can respond to your grace, we can lay down our calculators, we can live life before you as you intended to give it to us. We pray this in the name of Christ, our loving and risen Lord. Amen.